internet. This is why I must trust my shamanistic instincts as a thespian. My name is Matthew Kroll. And you tell everyone Nick Cage is a good smoocher. My name is Shahir Dowd. <laughs> and this is the only podcast about movies, specifically my favorite titled film this year <laughs> thus far, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Uh, what is the Milan Kandura book? The Unbearable... Um... You are asking the wrong man. The, the unbearable... Ah. At the wrong time of day. Hang on, hang on. I got to get this now because uh, my uh, unbe- unbearable lightness of being. That's We, we could go with that. Or, or um, uh, the Dave Eggers book, um, A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius. I think those those would be equally appropriate titles here, right? Sure, sure. Uh, Shahir, it's too early for you to be quoting literature to me. Okay, sorry, I apologize. Um, uh, Everybody at home, we are doing this in the morning. I have a cup of coffee from a French press. Shahir was nice enough to invite me out to go get some some breakfast early, which I could not make, I'm sorry. Um, but it, this is a this is a, a lovely way to start a Friday morning, just getting together with my best film bud, talking about Nick Cage, talking about Nick Cage. Oh, Nick Cage on Nick Cage. It's Cage on Cage. It's a cage match. It's a cage match. <laughs> it, there's moments in this movie that are literally a cage, a cage match. Yeah. So I'm excited to get to talk about Nick Cage. I think we're going to be chatting about Nick Cage's uh, film history, which actually it, it's just come up a lot because we have had had a recent uh, outpouring of Nick Cage material on the show, both with Mandy, Jiu-Jitsu, and now this. Uh, it feels like we're talking about Cage. And Pig. And Pig. And Pig. Yeah, this is the Cage show. Um, yeah. So uh, I'm excited to do that. But we also have a good amount of emails that we uh, had been uh, holding off for a little while. So apologies to everyone who had written us in and for us to, to not uh, immediately respond to them. But we wanted to. Uh, we had a few guests recently, so we wanted to hold this off until until there was a, until it was a lovely morning. So uh, for you listeners at home who are here only for the Cage Batch, uh, <laughs> you may want to skip forward for a little bit because we've got a few of these to get through. Uh, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say this. Sure, we'll put the time in the description. Description, yeah. like all that stuff, but don't do that. These are good. <laughs> these, these are, are good emails. These email. are great emails. These are gonna pique your cinematic interests and and help define whatever oeuvre of enjoyment you'd like to have for this fine day. You're listening to this, and uh, also anyone can email us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail or hit us up on Twitter at onlymoviepod or go to our Instagram. What's our Instagram? Is it onlymoviepod? Is that what it is? Yeah, I think so. I think. So. What else are we on? We, we put th- we put the graphics on there every <laughs> every every week. What, what else we got that. going on here? We got <laughs> uh, we. Or not on TikTok. Not on TikTok. Oh, no, we are. We might. No, I have a TikTok account which is associated with Only Movie Podcast, and I know I've got to change that because I started posting some stuff on TikTok, just like random little videos that I made. And um, But then I realized they're attached to Only Movie Podcast, so it's like people will just be like, what is this? I love it. I think if we were to survive on TikTok, we would have to um, probably uh, lip sync to our own episodes or something Ugh. like we'd have to have a really good quote i wonder if because you know how it's all like lip syncy stuff and like sound bites and like all that stuff it's it's <laughs> basically vine 2.0 yeah the the i wonder has anyone done lip syncing to your own thing <laughs> i'm sure like uh the, the big one right now is louis thoreau uh and his uh um uh, he basically did a rap. Uh, I don't know if you know yes. Louis Thoreau. My money don't jiggle jiggle. 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 It, it folds. folds. I like to see yeah. you wiggle wiggle. Faux show. Anyway, um, uh, so is that a man or is that an AI? That's that's Louis Thoreau. Do you, do you, have you seen any of his? I don't. Do- uh, he's a documentary filmmaker. Um, oh, uh, and a very he's sort of like uh, Britain's Michael Moore. Um, Tight. Yeah. So I I actually it's it's very funny. I didn't know the history of that. I've heard it across everything yeah. on the internet, and I was like, it sounded to me. Like, like a robot. That's Louis. Th- like like <laughs> someone plugged in, someone trained an AI to write a PG-13 uh, sort of like hip-hop song. That that pretty much sums up Louis Thoreau's voice. Uh, okay. He's great. got a couple of great ones. He's got a great one about Scientology. He, he's, like I say, like Michael Moore, which is that he follows people around and he's got this sort of like, he is this tall, gangly British person uh, who kind of pre- like gives you the impression that he doesn't know what he's talking about like he just sure. kind of asks dumb questions all the time but that's but he's asking in a way to probe you and to figure out and to like put you at ease and also to make you know he's got this sort of unusual personality but well, it, actually it's not unusual it's just uh he just puts on these airs of not being as bright sure. as he actually is um so he's well, got I'll some really good uh, docs check out his work um uh long history of uh, work for the BBC so there's basically Louis Thoreau does everything and I think this comes from 
uh, an episode called Louis Thoreau and Gangster Rap or something along those lines where he went and followed some rap. This, this was like in the uh, like early noughts when like gangster rap was like the thing and or, you know, that's the way they labeled it. And so he went and like followed some people and then like at the end of it wrote a rap. So I have a, I have a, I know this is a tangent. Yeah, yeah sorry. The movie, we'll hold on. No, 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 no. Movie hold on, hold on. I, I, have a, I have a thought about this. Have you noticed, Shahir, and this is actually, this is prominent to cinema and prominent to just media in general, I would say, this question I'm about to ask. Have you noticed that with things like TikTok or Insta Stories mm-hmm. or like all this stuff that's basically remixes of things, mm-hmm. it's either something that happened popular uh either a song that's really hitting or or like an interview or something someone gave like the woman who went to i forget what gala it was who was like i have to say it's a masterpiece right. if i do say well, so. that was like, recent. whatever that like was, uh, julia yeah i know that's recent yeah. right so it's either those things yeah. or something hyper obscure from like the early 2000s <laughs> or like even earlier and the interesting thing about that is we are now in the first time, I think, at least in my lifetime, where, like, the – it's not just, like, a remake or something like that. Like, it's, like, a daily remix of something else, and the and the internet zeitgeist will catch something and then give something brand new life, which it never actually had before. Yeah. Or – so sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't. Like, for instance, that rap, mm. that's old, but now it's everywhere, and people are doing their own dances to it and making their own thing with it. Whereas I just saw another thing, for blast from my fucking past. I don't know if anyone remembers Charlie the Unicorn. Uh, vaguely? Candy Mountain? Candy Mountain, Charlie! I no, vaguely is that, remember it, yeah. It's an old Flash cartoon. Yeah. And now everyone on fucking TikTok is just, like, lip-syncing to it. And I was like, how did <laughs> Charlie the fucking Unicorn from, like, Newgrounds or whatever... Pop, I, know, I find it fascinating, and I feel like we're in the first time where, like, this is actually, like, co- pop culture movements based on past ridiculous, like, uh, I, w- I won't say amateur, but, like, smaller pieces of media can now become, like, can be on a Toyota commercial eventually. Like, it's weird. Yeah, well, I think it's, it's the the general approach to remix culture that has to do with technology changing where we um, are, you know, um, I think there's a media theory about this, which is that uh, when technology made the shift from physical to digital, it allowed us to reinterpret works and revisit works in in profound ways that was not possible when, yeah. you know, when media communication was through the printing press or the radio or anything like that. Magnetic but, tape. Magnetic tape. But the <laughs> thing is, for me, uh, this is always the way it's been. People, like, if you look at the origins of hip-hop, for example, um, the, 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 you know, the um, Run DMC and Grandmaster Flash in the Bronx, um, what they were doing was taking old records and resampling them and making something new. Uh, mm-hmm. And that is, that is, that's the culture of hip hop. That's the culture of, of almost all technology today. And what's, what uh, I think is interesting about it is that there's both this quality of uh, feeling like it is internally refractive and like we, that, that could be dangerous, not dangerous, but like um, self-serving and boring. not, and not yeah. creating the new. Uh, I would argue the Marvel universe is getting that way. Uh, but yeah. then the second thing is, is that it is also uh, allows us to breathe new work into life, uh, breathe new life into old work, um, and give us uh, and, and like again take something that might be relatively obscure or uh, unseen and make it and transform it into something new. And I think that can yeah. be really beautiful as well. Oh, 100%. Believe me, I, I hope I'm not coming off as, like, old man on the porch, <laughs> yeah. get off my lawn. I'm not. I'm actually very much here for it. I just find it fascinating that, like, th- these, like, again, it, it actually does feel very hip-hop. I like the, the point that you sort of said. Like, it's 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 very sort of like a grassroots thing doing something else with, doing something new with something old. And and this will come into, pl- and oddly, I, I don't know, maybe it's just the fact that we we weave conversations this way. This will come into play when we discuss Nick Cage and the remixing yeah, I guess so. or the refractiveness of this particular film and his career. But first, but first, the first, the first plangent of the <laughs> of the podcast. This is an email from Vincent. Uh, Vincent writes, "Happy 40th, Matt. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I've been loving your back catalog and extra history, and I bet Robert Eggers also enjoyed the Ibn Fadlan episode. I hope so. <laughs> I." Hope so. I wonder if uh, on set they were watching extra history to like figure out how to stab someone. So I mean, here's the thing: if they if they didn't watch extra history, yeah, 
they must have read the accounts of Ibn Fadlan. Like, there's no, there's no fucking way that they didn't. Yeah. So, like, the sources were definitely shared. Uh, the email continues. I have to agree with both of you guys. The Northman didn't land for me. The only difference is I was poised to love the movie. Oof. Both The Lighthouse and Vikings season one and two are favorites of mine, so naturally The Northman was my most anticipated movie of 2022. The weird thing is, I don't know why I didn't love it. Is it too crisp, polished, and studioed, ED? <laughs> is it lacking Eggers' um, past... Uh, abrasiveness and confrontation i have no clue and it's killing me i would say five out of ten as well but six out of ten for one reason breaststroke (laughs) most the (laughs) most protagonists break into freestyle but alexander skarsgård does eyes open breaststroke lunging toward his revenge the use of breaststroke is phenomenal best vince as someone who has just started swimming and uh is you know pathetic at it for one and still learning (laughs) to to uh, to freestyle i love this because i also noted like again as someone who's just started swimming i was like hey what's this technique here and it is like this entire I'm just gonna get where I'm going, kind of thing. Um, so, but he, you know, look, uh, it's an endurance thing. He has a long way to swim. We, you know, like, so he's just going. How can I maximize my return on every stroke? Uh, and I love that. That's so. Funny. It would be weird well, if glad, he broke it in I think. Yeah. I'm glad that could buy a point. I could buy one, one point, point of movie stroke. Yeah. Uh, thank yeah, you. It's, it's odd. It's odd that um, I, I, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, Shear, but like, I feel like. Most people I've talked to, or actually, I guess my question is, have most people you've talked to about the Northmen, have they all kind of had the same vibe we all did? Like, kind of like, eh. There was one person who uh, who emails us in a little bit later, um, who I was surprised by, had the, had the same reaction. Well, they told me about their reaction before I'd seen the movie. Um, mm. So, I... I Actually, I haven't talked to too many people about the Northmen, to be honest. To be uh, perfectly frank with you, I and it, maybe that fits in. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'd be, I, I'm curious, but I, you know, I stand by. Uh, I think our both our assessments, which is fairly yeah. similar on that one. Uh, Jacob, long-time listener who we love hearing from. Uh, Jacob! Uh, Matt, you asked the question that if uh, people wrote in, would you be interested in a Patreon for the Only Movie Podcast? And Jacob oh, writes, yeah. I would love to support the podcast via Patreon. Uh, if there's more content you want to make that Patreon requires uh, to make sense, or if you feel you need, want support or uh, for what you currently create. I suppose I don't want you to force you into making uh, more content you'd prefer to by going down such a road, and I personally don't want tons more content, but bonus episodes on topics that you uh, don't think make sense in the main feed every so often would be a delight uh i haven't been emailing it as much as i have in the past but i do know i'm really loving all the episodes uh, i also said content a lot in this email <laughs> and it totally isn't the right word for the awesome open-minded fun flamboyant introspective artistic dissections you record <laughs> on the weekly and i'm gonna i'm gonna just throw this back real quickly um to jacob because if you haven't listened uh we did an episode on um hamilton uh, mm-hmm. A few, yes. uh, probably a year or two ago, and Jacob wrote in um, probably uh, based on that. And actually, I played it in a later episode. I'm, I actually don't know which one it was, um, but I, you know, I'll post a link to it because Jacob wrote in with the best. Uh, remix of something we had done. He turned it into a song, and it wasn't just, you know, we're talking about remix culture. Maybe we've got a theme going here. Uh, It wasn't just playing bites that we had. Uh, What Jacob did that was so brilliant, uh, and I still love it, and I still listen to it, was that he essentially wrote a beautiful, beautiful um, song about the nature of art. And, yeah, and yeah, as yeah, it related yeah. to things that we were talking about on the podcast. And um, so you know, to the extent that I don't think um, what Jacob was doing, you know, like we, we, we may have been the starting point of this, but Jacob took it so much further into his own uh, ideas about art. And I absolutely loved it. Um, so it's the kind of thing, uh, if it was on Patreon, I would pay for it as well. So, uh, you know, I just want to push that out there as well, that Jacob <laughs> did this incredible thing. Uh, yes. And we, we love uh, hearing from Jacob. Um, as far as the Patreon is concerned, it's interesting. I was trying to think of what we would offer. I had a, I had a couple of thoughts. I have a couple ideas. <laughs> I, they're all bad. Um, but like the, the fun things I think for Patreon may, might be like sort of what Jacob suggested, sort of a bit more off the cuff yeah. things. Either like, like what if it, <laughs> I don't know if this would, would be helpful to anybody, but what if it was like Matt and Shahir review one episode in the middle of a series of a television show that they've never watched any of beforehand. Like season three, episode nine of Severance or whatever, right? Like, like I like I thought that'd be weird and fun, yeah. but maybe not fair. Um, 
what do, what do you got? Do you have I, any? I have or do you want to share? Uh, which is actually, I started doing this and then I got sidetracked, which is actually the title of this thing I was trying to do. Um, okay. But I, like, I was watching Seven uh, while I was locked up in COVID. And uh, this little tiny detail caught my attention uh, about like one of the background characters. And it got me thinking about. Um, the philosophy of John Doe in Seven and the world with which John Doe comes from. And it got, it, it kind of spiraled out into this sort of, this. I started like reading a book and thinking about um, production design and thematic, thematic relevance to production design and how it relates to, uh, I somehow got to Ridley Scott uh, via John Doe. And basically there's this like brain map that I sketched out of like this one background character at the, in the back of seven uh, and how it relates to this bigger idea I had about um, uh, production design. And I was like, Oh, I would be actually interested in like trying to follow that, that track into a, into a sort of coherent essay. Um, and that, so that was one thing. The second thing is for me, um, um, if you listen to the podcast, I'm really interested in the way in which film, uh, relates to our everyday political and philosophical, uh, philosophical life. Um, so an episode I've actually been trying to reach, reach out to a few guests for, um, and actually Matt, I should reach out to someone, you know, about it as well was, uh, obviously the, the leak of the Supreme court decision, uh, yep. on Roe v. Wade. And there is a film from, um, I think the early noughts directed by Tony K called Lake of Fire, which is a black and white documentary about abortion rights in America. Um, and I was like, this would really make for an interesting episode if we could get some legal minds in to discuss this particular film with us as it relates to Roe v. Wade. So that's kind of, you know, uh, you got season nine of, this, of Severance. I'm kind of like thinking about abortion rights. Um, you know, like, yeah. like so it could, this Patreon could be like pretty varied in terms of like where we would go and what we could do with it if we ever did one. And if we ever... I was also, I, your thing gave me an idea not to just keep sort of going back and forth, but the you know, you're noticing a small detail about a movie, like a background character or a piece of scenery or whatever, and just doing a fucking deep dive for like 15 or 20 minutes on that one thing. That's exactly not the what scene, I, not the thing. Yeah, that's exactly you know? what I started doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway. I have uh, no follow through. So, uh, you know, like uh, we've had lots of great YouTubers on the show, like uh, Patrick Willems, uh, BK Rewind. Uh, those people have follow through on these things. <laughs> so uh, maybe the Patreon would, uh, you know, may, it would hold me accountable to follow through on some of these things. Maybe we should just do a Kofi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. All right. Uh, All right. Next email yeah. is from Lewis. Uh, Lewis writes, I've uh, been listening for years and can't say enough good things. I'm not a writing man, but I had to write in about the Northman. Ah, okay. He's not a writing uh, man, I've, but he's a Northman writing man. He's a Northman. <laughs> uh, I felt the point uh, was the stupidity of the revenge and the stories we tell ourselves slash others. Stealing an old sword from a corpse makes much less interesting story than a, f- than a fight to bring a zombie Viking to the light. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Eggers can't help but make the film challenging in that regard. To me, it felt like uh, a Viking uh, uncut gem. Nice. Um, <laughs> uncut gem. Dude going around doing stupid shit that us as an audience knows is mostly terrible ideas. At a certain point in both films, the protagonist can stop and come out on top, but they're stuck in their ways. I felt the movie had all the flair of Eggers films with some more action to get the general audiences more on board. Doctor Strange reminded me of Age of Ultron or Star Wars Rise of Skywalker <laughs> in both of the films. I feel like the series of fetch quests loosely strung together by plot. Not unlike Age of Ultron, this movie felt mostly like stepping stone for other Marvel stories instead of being a good story itself. Just painfully middle of the road with some nice Sam Raimi-isms in my opinion. Everything Everywhere All at Once is one of the better multiverse movies. Everyone should go see that instead. Thanks for taking the time to make great podcasts. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you, Lewis. Um, yeah, uh, it might be Louie, By the way, I'm not uh, oh, so Louis or Lewis. Yeah, uh, Sorry, apologies um, if I get that wrong. Yeah, it's funny. I I default whenever I see the word Louis or Lewis, I do normally default to Louis, but that's normally because I'm reading about French kings. Yeah, and also um, thinking about that line from Interview with a Vampire when Tom Cruise says, "Life has oh, no meaning anymore, does it, Louis?" I love Louis, that. Louis, <laughs> Louis. Um, yeah, uh, agree on the Northman. I think that's a very uh, apt, it's, it's, uh, it's the opposite read of what we just previously read, which was that um, you know uh, it, it's it's uh, about the story we tell ourselves. I do have a counterpoint, but it, uh, sorry, I interrupted you, Matt. Oh no, I was going to say uncut gems analogy apt. <laughs> I, I just think it's good. My my counterpoint is I think in the relation to the way that film is about the mythologizing of stories we tell ourselves. I agree, but I also think the film kind of, and this is Igor's um, forte, is the the interweaving of mythology and reality are two, uh, like, are but one and the same thing. 
Sure. The movie that your email, Louis, made me think about in relation to this, and I, I wonder—I don't know if you've seen it, and if you haven't, I think you, I'd be interested to get your take on it uh, if you would like to follow up with us, uh, is St. Maud. Um, because I think that has an interesting take on the mythologies and stories we tell ourselves with a real uh, uh, counterpoint about how we tell those stories and what they mean. Uh, mm. And I don't want to give too much away, but that movie packs a real punch in one frame in relation to what you're talking about. Um, so I would uh, I would be interested, Louis, if you hadn't seen that or if you have seen it, uh, what you thought about that in relation to the Northman. Doctor Indeed. Strange kind of feels like uh, I, I I'm I guess I'm I guess I'm being I'm less uh, invested in dissecting the Marvel Cinematic Universe at this point. Uh, you know, like uh, I feel like I I made I've made similar points over the past, but now I I uh, I, I don't I don't know I don't I don't feel very. Uh, compelled to keep talking I mean about I it. even said look I'm still very much into it but I even said like this was peak like set up crossover nonsense for me like I do not want more of that you know like, why I, I get- you know why I think I I'm not as invested anymore is that I have we have invested more time in other movies uh and, and like there's you know like again getting diving to everything everywhere all at once or the north one or other things like that has just meant that the the marvel cinematic universe isn't taking as much brain space for me so it's you know what's strange i'll say this even uh i think overall and i'm not saying this is a general line of quality but i think i i've gotten to the point where i like my stories in this uh in the mcu sort of delivered to me more this way mm-hmm. i've been more excited and enjoyed more the series right uh, and I, I'm kind of putting them all in the in that bucket. Yeah. Like um, Moon Knight, I was slow to get into, and I really, 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 really liked. Uh, it it didn't do something entirely different, and ended with you know uh, I won't spoil it, but things that Marvel movies have done in the past. But like it was just different enough, and Oscar Isaac really seemed like he cared and gave a shit, <laughs> so that was really nice. Um, and actually, I'm incredibly excited uh, for She Hulk. Okay. I, I showed um, my wife the She-Hulk trailer because I thought she she loves legal dramas, and I was like, "Look, here's a legal drama with the Hulk." Um, yeah, and, and I thought she might, do and, it. and she did. Yeah, so I, I'm very excited for that. Uh, so, but like, I'm finding myself getting more excited for that than say, even though I know it's going to be great, uh, Thor: Love and Thunder. Right. Like, I like I, I think there is in in Phase Four there is a sort of sameness which again i enjoy and will always go support uh so long as they keep doing it but at the same time uh my my excitement level has become more for like the piecemeal stories that i can get weekly i think again kind of more like comic books imagine what would Um, happen if i suddenly became so invested in the marvel cinematic universe that i was like you know like i i was raving about it every week and talking about it and you were like uh you know it's fine <laughs> and like we kind of just did a, Listen, a season five a season five. 300 uh, switcheroo <laughs> that would be great there's somewhere in the multiverse that exists that that, that thing. All right, next email. Uh, Laura, the, okay, I want to uh, put this out front. Laura uh, is a great friend to the show. She has actually uh, been on the show, uh, giving us like reviews of uh, movies that she has seen at Sundance. We actually owe her, uh, not owe her. I really want to do this film, but um, uh, Carol, uh, the Patricia Highsmith novel, uh, adaptation, uh, has been. She she asked for it a long time ago, and I like for the years I've just been like every time I see it on Netflix, I'm like I gotta sit down and watch Carol because everybody loves this movie, uh, and Laura has great taste, and so I we, we have to do that. But this is one of my favorite takes on everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, I recently had an thought and observation about the googly eyes of everything, everywhere, all at once, and okay. I didn't know where to share it. I thought maybe you guys would enjoy it. It's here. You should share it here. It occurred to me that visually, the googly eye is the direct opposite of the everything bagel. Now, if you haven't seen everything everywhere all at once, I will sound like a crazy person. However, I just want, and and these don't feel like terrible spoilers or like they won't ruin your experience, but there's just two very distinct visual metaphors that Laura is pointing out in the film. Especially, uh, and I'll continue here, especially the way the bagel is presented. It's a black ring with a white glowing center. A googly eye is a white ring with a black center. Coincidence? 
Perhaps. Or perhaps not. After thinking about it more, I believe it's very on purpose. Both items come to symbolize the two philosophies of the film at play. The eyes of Waymond and his kindness and perseverance, the bagel being joy and her nihilism. Even further, both symbols are worn on a character's forehead at some point throughout the film. Deidre stapling the sticking note to herself, Evelyn sticking the googly eye as her third eye. So... If I'm onto something here, it leaves me wondering what came first, the bagel or the googly eye. I also wonder if there's a yin and yang comparison to be made, as Evelyn does find a balance between these characters in the end. Hope you're doing well and uh, having a speedy COVID recovery here. Thank you very much, Laura. I love that email. Uh, I think it's good. I, I, it's really good, right? It's really, really good. Yeah. Like it, like it. What's great about it is it, um, it uh, is immediate. Like you, you, you. You understand the the way in which Laura is connecting these two visual metaphors, and secondly, it deepens our understanding of what the film is actually trying to do. And a rewatch with that, with just just with that single idea in mind, would deeply, deeply enrich in that film. There's also something very interesting too, because there. Let's just say that the two possibilities are that is very on purpose or that is not on purpose, yeah. right? Well, if that's very on purpose, that's a good that's a good thing. It's a great design, et cetera, et cetera. If it's not on purpose. And and uh, Laura and I'm sure some others have found that like dichotomy that to me speaks for the overall thematic design of the film, where if that was an accident, it's all of the things that weren't accidents that like kind of brought it together to have that be a bit too like in a way it's kind of like remixing culture when you find something in a work of art and turn it into something that means something to you that may not may or may not have been there to begin with. Laura, get on TikTok yeah. and then and then do uh, one of those things that I, I did. You know, Mar- <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, like the computer voice yeah. that talks about Marvel. Like, did you know in Marvel Age of Ultron when Hulkbuster came out of the sky, he had a fist in his hand, but Tony Stark had another fist, and then they punched each other. <laughs> and you're like, thanks, robot voice. Oh, oh, a hundred thousand views. Great. Okay, it's great. I, I'm going to recommend uh, a video essay by the name of Thomas Flight, who has a video essay about. Uh, I think it's called Martin Scorsese said I was wrong. Uh, I think that's the title of it, but essentially Thomas Flight had this whole video essay where he talked about the opening shot of The Irishman and how it was a reflection of the um, the shot the the single take from Good uh, from Goodfellas and the movie was therefore you know like in that way a reflection of the uh, previous works of Martin Scorsese. And then what happened was that Martin Scorsese had an interview where he talked about the opening shot of The Irishman. And he was like, "Yeah, we we just needed to get into this location in like uh, an easy way, and I didn't want to do it with cut." So and and, and essentially Thomas Flight. It was like yeah like there's this interesting thing which is the it's the way in which artists talk about movie versus the way in which an audience receives a movie uh, can be two very distinct things in my mind the way to reconcile that is an artist assembles the tools necessary for an audience to have an interpretive discourse on the film and in many ways what the artist's intentions are are almost, while important, almost irrelevant into the way in which the audience interprets it. So if the Daniels, in the case of Everything Everywhere All at Once, didn't design uh, the Everything Bagel and the the googly eyes to be inverses of each other, it's almost irrelevant because Laura's reading of it is um, uh, explores a dichotomy within the film and uses something within the visual design to do so. Whether it was put there intentionally doesn't matter. Um, and um, be- because the artists have created the situation where that interpretive discourse should happen. And the better films are ones that allow that have space for interpretive discourses. It's almost like Nick Cage's career being commented on by Nick Cage. Ooh. It's almost like that. Almost like that. Almost. Um, We're so close to talking about it. We will definitely, one more email. We'll one definitely more put email. Uh, one a timestamp uh, on this episode uh, so that you can jump to that if you really needed to. Uh, this one is from Zach. Zach, who has been on the show. Uh, I would like and welcome uh, segments of Shahir's son's movie reviews, as mentioned in the Stellar Northman episode, where I agreed with all the sentiments of both hosts about the respective movie. FYI, the Northman gets a 6 out of 10 me uh you should One follow zach on instagram which is called uh the zbc i believe uh he's got great uh, movie reviews and photographs and all that sort of stuff there's a couple of photographs of me in there uh also how does a new <laughs> hampshire goth know about shahir's exact birthday but i don't zach was doing a fun very thing. carefully uh, yeah exactly uh finally are there plans to do an episode about the bob's burgers movie if so messages this former guest episode 230 come on to talk about it and uh to talk about tv to movies adaptations animated and otherwise 
I think that's a great idea because Zach, uh, uh, the part of the the basis of our friendship is our love of the Simpsons, and uh, Zach is a uh, what I would call a Simpsons scholar, and I think he would uh, offer great insight into the translation of Bob's Burgers from TV to film, and that is a film I'm very excited to see. Yeah, and that comes out uh, next week. Is I that think. the is that the same weekend as as Maverick? Yeah, it's going to be Bob's Burgers versus Maverick, and you know what? I, I'm I'm all here for Maverick, but I and, and it is foolish to put to to make everything a competition as as uh, Ethan Hawke said recently. But I'm all about Bob's Burger, I, and I would I take think... the Bob's Burger crossover where Bob is flying one of the planes. Wow! <laughs> yeah, wow. No, I think uh, I think both films will be well. I think Bob's Burgers will be fun. I actually don't know about Maverick. I've heard it's great. Like I've heard I've heard that from people that have seen screenings that it's like an excellent yeah. Top Gun movie. Uh, I mean, um, being the only the only other one other than Top Gun, uh, but like you know, like fighter, like the 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 stunt work and yeah. the, the uh, flying is very impressive, and you should see it on a big screen. Yada yada yada. Um, I watched Top Gun like a few years ago when they did a 3D re-release of it. Uh, I a friend, a mutual friend of ours, and I snuck out of work and and decided to go see a midday screening. Uh, and I gotta admit, Top Gun is not. I I, I think it has like a really important place in culture. Uh, but it wasn't like the rescreening of it was like, um, ooh, I don't know if this movie kind of holds up in the way that I haven't watched yeah. it in like 20 years. Like, so like Top Gun was never my thing, I, I, uh, which is fine. Yeah. I know a lot of people love it. So, um, I, I, you know, my, I'm I'm more curious about this film than excited for it. To I, be like, perfectly at honest. this point, Tom Cruise is doing such a big song and dance to like get us back into the movies and make spectacles. So I'm like, yeah, cool. And I, yeah, I, I like Tom Cruise. Um, well, speaking of spectacles, yeah, speaking of spectacles. <laughs> Here are my glasses. Half hour in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the unbearable weight of massive talent. Again, thank you to everyone who emailed us. <laughs> yes, thank you, thank you. Uh, what is this the movie synopsis? I, I can tell you right now exactly what this film is about. Okay, IMDb says, in this action-packed comedy, Nicolas Cage plays Nick Cage, <laughs> char- channeling his iconic characters as he's caught between superfan Pedro Pascal and CIA agent Tiffany Haddish. Yeah, it would be funny if Tiffany Haddish was playing herself and Pedro Pascal was playing a version of himself. If like everyone was like, like, uh, like that. Uh, it wasn't the Seth Rogen movie, but um, uh, this is the end where everyone, yeah. play, where everyone played versions of themselves. Here's the thing. So I'm going to get back to that. I don't think this is accurate because he didn't really channel his iconic characters. I mean, you know, he he uh, he's in there he, as the. He, um, Played the himself wild, the actor, yeah, the, but he's but, not no, but channeling the, his character. Well, his his the version of him that was from Wild at Heart. You know, he has conversations with that character throughout the movie, and then and, he, yeah, that's he, one that's one direct channel. And then and then he kind of uh, references uh, Casta Troy from Face Off, Look, and then there's takes that, a lot of reference. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it re- should be references his <laughs> iconic characters. Um, so the first thing about this movie that confused the hell out of me, okay, was that Nick Cage was the only person playing themselves. Okay. Now, I knew, like, Pedro Pascal wasn't going to be, but I, I like, I, I I understand the choice. I think it's the correct one. Mm-hmm. But it, it was hard for me to see people I recognized be in a movie with a man I recognized playing himself. Really? That, that, yeah. that bother you? I didn't, it didn't bother me, but I found it like, I was like, wait, so is Tiffany Haddish supposed to be Tiffany Haddish but working for the CIA? No, okay, no. she's a care. Okay, uh, okay. And then like Pedro Pascal instantly like nailed it because he can just sort of, he's a chameleon, he can transform. Right. Um, again, this is not a slight to the movie. It was just, I was curious. Going in, I didn't know how this was going to be treated. Like when I first saw Neil Patrick Harris, I was like, oh, is he just friends with Neil Patrick Harris? And then I was like, oh, no, he's the agent. I got it. Like it was always, again, not a knock to it. But it was always like one step like, oh, it's that person I recognize. Oh, they're not playing themselves like Nick Cage is playing themselves. Like it was always that every time a character was introduced for me. Right. Um, again, not a problem, just an interesting sort of stepping stone to, right. to, to something like this. Because I don't know, I'm trying to think, what, what, other, what other films have sort of been like this. Oh, we've we uh, I we covered some. I right? have a Time magazine article in front of me uh, entitled 11 movies where actors played fictional versions of themselves." Uh, and there are many. We've done many on this. Uh, we uh, we've done a few of these on the show, which is uh, includes Keanu Reeves and Always Be My Maybe. Uh, of mm-hmm. course, being John Malkovich in Being John Malkovich. I mean, John Malkovich in Being John Malkovich. Yep. Margot Robbie in The Big Short. Uh, Megan Fox in The Dictator. Al Pacino in the amazing Adam Sandler movie Jack and 
Jill, uh, LeBron James in Trainwreck, Billy Zane in Zoolander, Neil Patrick Harris and Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. I do like that, uh, his, yep. uh, his cameo in that. Anna Faris and Keanu, and everyone in This Is The End. Uh, oh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back as well. Those are obviously, there's a lot of cameos that we're talking about there where actors are playing like versions of themselves. So it's it's somewhat unusual to, I guess, do a version where a person is playing themselves. Like fully who, focused. And, and yeah. they are the entirety of the movie. Uh, but that's not unusual. Like, again, I think the high watermark for what we're sort of talking about here is this metatextual idea that, that reality and fiction meld into one. And then there are, um, there's probably greater references to that in literature. Uh, I'm struggling to think of anything other than Winston Groom's Forrest Gump in my head right now, but I'm sure there is uh, there are other uh, many um, instances where people have played, uh, where there are interactions with real people in, in novels and literature. Uh, I, <laughs> I wrote a play about Orson Welles once uh, meeting William Randolph Hearst in a bar in Cuba. So, of course. Uh, of did. course I did. Um, and, I, you know, like, I think the high watermark for this obviously is the two works by Charlie Kaufman, um, uh, uh, in the early 2000s, that is being John Malkovich, an adaptation starring Nicolas Cage, which took real people and melded their realities with the fiction work they ca- they had created. And um, I think what was interesting about that was that by doing so, there was a deeper, there was both the kind of fun fictionalization that we get with, say, someone like Keanu Reeves in Always Be My Maybe or This Is yeah. The End, where they're playing like really. Uh, exaggerated versions of themselves, you know, like really, really big versions of themselves in order for comedic uh, purposes. And then um, introspective, which uh, is what you get in something like Being John Malkovich, which has a sort of uh, a deeper look into the sort of the relationship that people have to fame and what that means, uh, the way in which actors work. And adaptation, where uh, Nicholas Page, uh, Cage plays a version of Charlie Kaufman writing the film about Susan Orlean, played by Meryl Streep, in a movie about them writing that film. Uh, I think what happens there is you get the sort of deeper introspection of like what that is, which is to say, uh, um, if we get into where this film kind of sits on that spectrum of, you know, simply exaggerated fun cameo to introspective um, dissection, I, I the unbearable weight of massive talent is somewhere in the middle for me, which is that... Yeah. Uh, it is. It is. It, it's delightful to see Nicolas Cage on screen, and it is delightful to see Nicolas Cage. Like this idea um, of Nicolas Cage uh, as a persona being played by himself, uh, reflecting upon his choices as an actor, um, and then being thrust into this sort of like uh, action comedy. Uh, not unlike a movie he would make as he is in a movie talking about writing that particular movie. That yeah. that all sounds really fun and metatextual, but essentially, and oddly, I don't know if you felt this way, kind of plays uh, like a really straightforward action comedy. Like it doesn't feel introspective in any way. Um, it, there's, there's, there's glimpses there's, there's of introspection, but it's not a focus. No, it... Um, it and there's one thing that really, really works, and I want to hear what your take on the movie is before we talk about, I think, the thing that actually elevates this. Sure. No, I mean, uh, first and foremost, I, I very much enjoyed this movie. Uh, it was very fun. It was, um, I mean, overall irreverent, um, which is fine. Uh, I, I Here's the thing. I like that Nick Cage exists and there's this sort of like, um, what's it called? This, uh, this idea, this, this remix of what his, uh, is his persona is online based on like his wacky lines and Oh, not the bees. And like, he's supposed to be just like this energetic nutball. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also find that a bit grating. Hmm. Um, and, out of context, this is not Nick Cage's fault. I think it's again, it's society remixing who Nick Cage is. Mm-hmm. That like I think really like when it's all of those things thrown like in a line, it gets me a little bit odd. So I was worried that that would happen here. I, I was reading some uh, reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, and something that someone said specifically was like, um, "This is the exact a right." correct amount of cage being this character that cage has been like portrayed as Mm. right like i was never annoyed with this movie i thought it was very fun he he undulates between kind of like a bit out there talking to an earlier version of himself but uh you know and and yelling something crazy but he also like understands what's happening in his career Mm. in the movie 
he he is dealing with it the way a human being would. Hmm. Uh, granted, an eccentric one, but not like a cartoon character. Right. And that I really appreciated. Um, and I think overall, the the like, you know, the action comedy bits, the part about the, you know, uh, the 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 guy he's staying with, Pedro Pascal's character, Javi, Javi, uh, is like an evil drug lord who kidnapped a, a a president's daughter or like whatever, and like, and then the Tiffany Haddish is in the CIA and they're like get Nick Cage to do it because he's in the wrong place, wrong time. Like that to me is silly and like, it, it's not. I wouldn't call it effective, but like it's like oh, it, it gets them into funny situations where I can watch them take LSD and like run through a a, a village for a little bit. Like I get it. Mm. Um, and then sort of. The final thing that I I like and I'm fascinated with, but I'm also confused me in the moment was the family dynamic. Mm. Because again, if Nick Cage is playing Nick Cage, mm. and I know it's a version of himself, I kept wondering like how close this like the family life was: divorced wife, sixteen year old daughter, like not connecting, kind of obsessed with his own stuff, like. I, I, I don't know anything about Nicolas Cage's personal life, and I was like, therefore, I was like, wait, that's not his wife, is it? Or that's not really, like, I was like, what's the... And then I go into the thing once you find out that it's not, <clears throat> or once you re- re- read about it and know that it's not, that none of that's referenced in the movie. Um, it got me more interested in, like... It, I, I, it's not revisionist history. I don't know what to call it. Like... He's playing a character of himself, which means that character can have differences. But like when the character piece is about is so deeply about mm. that character, like Neil Patrick Harris in Harold and Kumar mm. is like a psychopathic version of himself. Mm. Like he's not we're not seeing his family. Mm. Right. Like here we're seeing Nick Cage's and I'm air quoting for the in movie family. So I was like, I never knew where that line was blurred or like what that was referencing to like is this nick cage working through some stuff or is this just something that someone wrote in there to give a uh, a reason for nick cage to become an action star at the end of his movie about nick cage like there so i i kept i kept spiraling back on myself about the sort of remix nature of this movie mm. um and and the lastly i would say no matter what the answers that we sort of uh, got personally or that we gleaned from this conversation I very rarely use this uh, this term uh, in in these particular cases, but I will. Uh, I think this is kind of a brave move mm-hmm. from Nicolas Cage. Right. He 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 rides a tightrope of accepting the ridiculousness and poking fun at the ridiculousness, and yeah, making money off poking fun at the ridiculousness. But like the balancing act of all that for to be quite honest, this isn't just Nick Cage. This is acting in general. Like. For a business that is based on ego, mm. and not in a bad way, just that's kind of how you have to be, like, to be able to do this movie and have fun with it and reference yourself enough or exaggerate yourself enough is impressive as hell. I wouldn't be able – I mean, if I could act, but, like, I, I wouldn't be able to do that. I think I my skin is not uh, hard enough for that particular exercise. Well, I think um, there's an interesting thing happening, which is that uh, Nick Cage had uh, not fallen into, but um, you know, not that he went anywhere. Uh, he didn't. Not that he went anywhere, but that uh, he there was a conversation around Nick Cage's relevance because he had kind of uh, done, as we know na- now, know uh, why Bruce Willis had done a similar thing, which is that gone into the direct TV market um, and was appearing in a lot of movies, and there was this sort of running gag with Nicolas Cage, which was. Does he, you know, does he does he ever say no to anything, which is that he's willing to to do anything? But as we noted when we discussed, um, I think both Pig and Jiu-Jitsu and Mandy um, was this idea that despite appearing in movies that would feel uh, below his pay grade in terms of his capacity, you know, Oscar winner Nick Cage, blockbuster action star Nick Cage, um, uh, that there was always a sense that he never phoned it in. And yeah. I found this article from uh, Sight and Sound magazine uh, that was profiling Nick Cage in 1995 uh, after he just appeared in um, um, Kiss of Death. 
and uh, you know they they were basically doing a chronicling of uh, his particular persona and what he worked like. And I think there was both, uh, you know, and and this is a movie criticism or a film criticism thing, but you know, like trying to identify where he sat in the spectrum of leading men. Um, You know, some suggestions were that he was akin to Marlon Brando in terms of his ferocious nature on screen. Uh, Others were more. uh, pointing to his actual both a physical appearance in similarity to and willing to willingness to self-parody himself like Elvis Presley as a movie star. Um, and the the conclusion I think that uh, Manolo Dargis, uh, who's a fantastic writer, uh, comes to is that Nick Cage is uh, his entire body of work is is predicated by the fact that he, uh, has often played the wild card and has an, has an inability to conform to commercial expectation. Here's the line. Um, he may have reached uh, for the mainstream by showing up in junk like Amos and Andrew, and actually much later after this uh, particular article came out, he would do the absolute trifecta of the rock, con air, and face-off um, <laughs> after winning an Oscar for um, leaving Las Vegas. So, um, But uh, uh, Dargis continues, but he seems incapable of fully making the leap because it would mean leaving his own skin. Uh, last year, following the three features he dubbed as a sunshine trilogy honeymoon in vegas guarding tests and it could happen to you cage wrote an article expressing his desire to return to a different way of making meaning i want to get back to doing independent movies again he explained because i believe the only way to keep any creative integrity is either to work with a powerful director who can get what he or she wants from a studio or to do smaller independent films uh whether this is sincere or self-loving it appears he took a pay cut to play the suicidal alcoholic and mike figgis's forthcoming leaving las vegas a movie which he would then go on to win uh, the Best Actor uh, uh, Oscar for and and then oddly have one of the, the most interesting turnarounds in cinema by following it up with the with that tri- trilogy of uh, explosive blockbuster action, The, co- uh, rock, the rock, Con Air, and Face Off. Um, so for me, I think the thing that, that is prevalent in that question that you're asking about, like, the bravery of being introspective is that Nick Cage is an intro... Like, I think by his nature is an internally introspective human being. And I think the truths that feel real in this film are both uh, his, uh, his introspection and his love of cinema. Like, That's what it is. Yeah, he, yes. and, and that love of cinema means... You know, like, they even take swipes at, like... Um, superhero movies in this in this particular thing which which also Nicolas Cage is a big fan of because he is a he's a major superhero He literally named himself after Luke well partially after, after Luke, Luke Cage, Cage and his son is named Kal-El after after Superman and at one point <laughs> Nicolas Cage was going to play Superman in a Tim Burton movie uh, there's great footage of him wandering around in the suit that they actually made for that for that particular movie in uh, a lot of screen tests it's, it's really uh, kind of uh, almost what Seinfeld would describe as bizarro world Superman um, but but amazing and I think I think there is a multitude of layers to who Nick Cage is. And for me, the way that he's working through his art here isn't necessarily like an introspection on his life. I think a better example of that would be something like Pig, where it feels like he's actually working through, or the character is actually working through uh, the traumas of his past. In this film, I think the the, the sort of the idea of uh, the disconnection with his daughter I think is maybe there's some truth to it, but it feels like a really good bookend to what is this action comedy. And, you know, again, just coming back to me, the, the, the feeling I get is the what lets this movie down is the kind of action comedy of itself, which uh, is very stock standard. This is not in any way um, like the introspection or sort of clever meta uh, meta qualities that we have in a film like um, Adaptation or Being John Malkovich or anything like that. It's, sure. it's much more... Um, there was another movie, The Lost Jungle, I think, that came out this week uh, or recently with uh, Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum. Which Lost are, City. Uh, the Lost City, which I really want to see. And Brad Pitt plays a character in that film, which is sort of like the 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 Mills and Boone uh, kind of cover model version of Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. And I think that film, because it's like just... Like, I think these two films work in tandem in that way. Like, they, they mm. would feel like they'd come from, from a similar, similar ilk, which is that these actors are playing personas of themsel- of their public personalities. Um, so I think that's really interesting. Where the movie sings for me, and I think really works, uh, is the relationship between Pedro Pascal and Nicolas Cage. I think those two on screen together in the scenes that they're having uh, where they're essentially becoming best friends are so delightful and work on such a 
profoundly real level compared to the rest of the movie that you kind of was like oh i wish it was just this like when there's a scene where they where they take lsd and they go on like a drive together and then like there's this long extended bits where they have to climb over a wall and it was like these really feel lived in and worked out and not going for the cheap seats with these gags although they are very very funny but like they feel really um like dynamic and we're really invested in these characters and then you know as that's as those scenes progress these two start talking about writing a screenplay together which ostensibly becomes the movie that they are are um are in Uh, or um you know like so the world of like the action you know as they rewrite it becomes part of that and i think that really works that um actually again it's a this is uh, the unbearable weight is a lesser film than this, but kind of feels like uh, what Barry Sonnenfeld did with Elmore Leonard's Get Shorty. Um, you know, like where again you have Danny DeVito playing an exaggerated, fictionalized version of an actor yep. that is kind of like Danny DeVito. Um, so I think you know ultimately the thing for me is that what this where this movie works is it creates this fun dynamic between a fan and Nicolas Cage, and it creates this sort of like gentle reminder that Nicolas Cage is a true believer when it comes to integrity in your work. And and to that extent, I think it feels very natural that he has the ability to self-critique himself in this way in this film and mm-hmm. even delve into the depths of uh, using the stories from his daughter because he, I fundamentally believe that he believes that that would be um, uh, a worthwhile thing to do. Um, so I actually, I liked that, but I don't, I, the movie itself is a sort of, you know, it's, 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 um, fine, acceptable, you know, like comedy action it is, caper, but it's, you know, like it's not the greatest in those terms no, as well. You know, I mean, here's what I, I would equate it to like, uh, a, a, a really cool item in like basic B packaging, right? Like yeah. there, there's a lot inside of it. If you want to go looking for it, yeah. but like, if you walked by this on a shelf, You'd be like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, like um, the interesting thing, too, it's, you, you mentioned it when you talked about how he's just a cinephile and he loves movies. And he loves not – he's a rarity. Like, I truly believe Nick Cage loves every kind of movie. Yeah, yeah. Like, he – anything that anyone's putting on screen, he's down for. Yeah. And I think – with something like this film, the only way that I like – and I don't want to say forgive. I guess like let it – let some of the the contrivances fly. Like I think the ending is a, like too cheesy for my tastes. It's a very good like, ending. Yeah, yeah. And it's t- – you know, that's totally fine. Yeah. Uh, but like I found myself – Weirdly, like until the last look with him and his daughter when they're watching, yeah. I think it's and, uh, and, and what, the, what was the song? The the song that played, which was basically like, uh, "Remember I'm still here" or something like. I can't remember yeah, what yeah. the words were, but um, um yeah, like it, you know, it all felt very paint by numbers and whatever. But like, two things made that fine and work and actually be effective for me. One is I know that Nick Cage loves all movies and believes that even the cheesy endings or even the dumb ones as much as the art house films, as much as the blockbusters, as much as the uh, uh, esoteric horror and like all this stuff, like they all truly matter to him. Mm, yeah. And so that made me be like, okay, this is great. Mm. And the second thing is, even though it's a cheesy ending or even though there's cheesy bits in it, like there are moments of Nick Cage like acting with emotion and purpose in this movie that that last shot it's funny you you forget because he's bombastic and he's silly and he's making fun of himself and like you know he has such a persona but like this dude can fucking act and (laughs) and and in that last shot of just his daughter's head on his shoulder and they're watching a movie or whatever i guess minor spoiler alert on that take but we're already 50 minutes in so rock and roll um the look on his face Mm was easily one of the most effective moments of the film for me. And I had the thought in my head of, I'm like, oh yeah, like title makes sense. Yeah. Like I was like, you managed to take a ridiculous thing, making fun of yourself, go through it, turn it into an action movie slash a uh, honestly emotionally resonant buddy comedy that then turned in the third act into a subpar action film getaway chase scene where the actor then becomes a bit of a superhero themselves with no real explanation behind it. And then it turns into like 
they sell the script that they were going to do and it's like a big thing and they're friends in the ending and he goes back to be with his family rather than go to a, a premiere thing, right? Yeah. And like that's cheesy as fuck. But that last shot, man, like yeah, it works. The look, the look on his face, the acting, the the massive mm-hmm. talent that we the are we are told about, approach. the titular, <laughs> the shamanistic approach to his thespian arts, yeah. uh, like I got emotionally panged, and I was like, "Fuck, man!" Mm-hmm. Like so rarely in cinema for me is a giant ball of yarn just thrown all over the place. And like, I like the color and it's making neat shapes and like whatever, but I'm like, that's not a co- like a concise, cohesive package. And then all of a sudden it's just like one move mm. and the yarn is, is completely put into spools or the Rubik's cube is solved and you never thought it would hit that way. And then it did it. And I was like, fucking Nick Cage. <laughs> uh- like, yeah, yeah, and I, and I think I, I think that kind of all sums up to you know like this 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 idea of the shamanistic approach to uh, his thespian uh, art is that ultimately um, in uh, you know Nick Cage contains multitudes. Uh, obviously, he is a movie star that is uh, that is willing to be ridiculous in a Michael Bay movie or a Simon West movie or a John Woo movie. Um, But he's also, you know, like, I think the thing that I was struck by is that he is deeply um, embedded in the love sentiment. Like, you know, look, look no further to the fact that his, that his birth name is Coppola and he is uh, the nephew of Francis Ford Coppola uh, and grew up in, you know, cinephile circles, um, you know, and, and has worked with many a director. Um, you know, I love that the, the first scene of this movie, by the way, did you recognize who the person he was auditioning for? Uh, no. Uh, who was that again? That's David Gordon Green, whose uh, film we did, uh, we, we've done the Halloween series and who yeah, made yeah, one yeah. of my favorite films of all time, um, uh, George Washington, and did a film with Nicolas Cage called Joe uh, many years ago. Um, so I also like how that he gives that cold read in the parking lot or whatever, and it's bad. Yeah. And then he gives the same read at the, a, end, as of, the end of the action yeah. sequence, and it's good. And you're like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, it, because because I think Nick Cage is always a wild card, but he's a wild card. He, like, there, there is this thing, which is that he's defying both the leading man role and the, the bit player. You know, I love this as a scene in the film where uh, the young, wild at heart version of Nick Cage like slaps him around and is like, are you going to do a Duplass Brothers movie where you play like the uncle in the back in the bit player? You're a goddamn movie star. You can't do that. And I, you know, like, and, and you know, he slaps him around and I was like, I like that there's this, this sort of walking contradiction with him. But what I, what I think I get most out of that is that at the heart of it, Nick Cage is a truth seeker, right? Like he's a person who underlying his choices believes that there is a truth in art and no more so than in jujitsu, a movie that we both loathe, but, yeah. but that where he bought this take, which was like, Hey, you know, what's interesting about this character is that he has been living off the grid for so long. He has come to see the world a la the way Dennis Hopper's character in apocalypse now sees the world. And he embodies yeah. that Marlon Brando. Thing. I think, I think Nick Cage has that capacity, you know, that, that sort of worldview within him. Um, and, you know, look, we, we also should mention that this is uh, written and directed by Torm Gomacon, who uh, wrote that uh, kind of a, a sort of offbeat romantic comedy called uh, That Awkward Moment um, uh, many years ago with uh, Michael B. Jordan uh, and I think Miles Teller as well. Or it could be, uh, was it Miles Teller or Zac Efron? Hold on, let me just pull that up. Um, Let's look up Tom Gormacon. It was Zac Efron and Michael B. Jordan and, My- and Miles Teller. So all three of them. Um, you know, which I actually did. Uh, did I see that movie? It didn't make a lasting impression on me. Um, but you know, like a sort of fun romantic comedy, early romantic guy comedy. You know, in the sort of vein of the Farrelly brothers. Um, I-, I think there is a sort of there is a really good connect here in terms of like actually what Nick Cage is interested in in terms of like making movies that connect with an audience. If you remember last week, uh, uh, Ethan Hawke was brought up in his conversations about the relationship to big movies and little movies. And his, and his point is like, I don't believe there's high art and low art. I believe there is art that is made with passion and love. And then, then there is art that is made for money. And mm. he says, for me, the art that is made for money, uh, sorry, for passion, for, for passion and love always trumps no matter what, no matter what it is, it could be. And he, he gives examples. He's like, Logan is, 
is this movie that is made with passion and love, and I absolutely love it, and Doctor Strange is that way. And then there are other movies that, you know, like, uh, are made clearly with money in mind, and, you know, they they become disposable at the heart of it. And I think Nick Cage looks at it the same way. But for Nick Cage, I think the thing is interesting is that even within the blockbuster spectrum, you know, like the cons, the rock air, the face-offs, you know, like, even his cast of Troy, there is a hint of, like, mirrored truth in it. And again, he's so steeped in, like, what where he sits in cinema history that I think he's aware uh, of, uh, of, the, of the paradigm that he embodies there, which is that like Castor Troy is this ridiculous character when Castor Troy is in that choir group and does that like ass grab of like a, a young girl, by the way, it's very, very awkward. Um, yeah. But he plays it like, a thousand times the level that's probably on the page. The Ringer podcast did an evaluation of Nick Cage's work, and I think uh, someone on the Ringer podcast did something along the kinds of uh, Nick Cage is the ultimate more than what's on the page actor. He is the reliable wild card. Yeah, the guy who looks at the script and goes, how can I make this more than what's here? Yeah. Um, and I think that that's a that's a really rare talent. And um, I mean... An unbearable. The, uh, huh? It's An unbearable. unbearably it's massive weight talent. Massive talent. But I think, you know, like, I mean, look, personally, if I think Nick Cage's instincts are closer in line with what Spike Jones did in Adaptation, where that was a film which took, like, public persona and private and melded them together in sort of really weird ways and, like, um, told, you know, like, essentially they're doing an adaptation of Susan Orlean's book with Susan Orlean in the film and writing an adaptation about the film about not being able to write this adaptation. And, you know, like, I think uh, obviously the unbearable weight of massive talent does not get anywhere near that level. That's not a slide on the film. They're just different movies. Um, but I think this is a really good example of a really fun, light, fluffy self-parody that has some weight of truth to it about Nicolas Cage as a human being. Um, and again, uh, like, but, but there's, there's, there's a side of this that is both nonsensical and very generic, which is the action kidnapping story. Um, uh, like it, it, I, I couldn't quite reconcile the fact that Harvey invited Nicolas Cage to his house while his brother had kidnapped the daughter of uh, the the was it I can't remember where I was like why would you do this you know like why would why? well he didn't know that he goes oh that was you yeah he says that but, uh, he in does the but like why would the brother allow this to happen on this day because the brother's a psych- I mean it's yeah psych- whatever power. it doesn't matter um, but but you know and, and the, the like Tiffany Haddish and. Um, um. Uh. Sorry, the other actor's name. Who? Oh, the other uh, agent. <laughs> yeah, the other agent. Everything. Who's a great? Who's a great actor? Uh. uh Ike uh, Ike Brandholz. Uh, Ike Brandholz. Who's uh. He, uh. What was the the gambling? Oh, the 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 young uh teenage sex comedy he was in. He was just so good in it. Um. Uh. You know, I think he uh, th- that story is kind of half-heartedly put in, and even when it gets meta-textual about the fact that they are writing the movie that they ostensibly are appearing in now. It it, it does feel... um, You know, you mentioned the word brave to for for Nick Cage to do this. I I think the film... uh, This will sound harsher than I intended to mean, but lacks the similar kind of spirit of bravery in terms of, like, breaking its form. Oh, yeah, 100%. You know, like, there's a generic sort of quality to it. Nick Cage took an average idea... (laughs) And made it way better than it deserves to be. That's what he does. Yeah. That's his fucking brand. Yeah. Uh, at this point, anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, this movie's not going to blow your mind. Yeah. You're going to enjoy this movie. Uh, even I think if you're not a fan of Nick Cage, like yeah. I, 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 it's it's too middle of the and this is again a backhanded compliment. I get is too middle of the road with like bits of like pertinent and 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 mindful um, emotional resonance that I think. It's gonna work for a lot of people, right? Um, I don't know. I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, I, 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 I think uh, I, en- I enjoyed it for what it was. Yeah, and, yeah. And, I'm not, again, yeah. it's not life changing. Yeah. You're not gonna come out of this thing and be like, "Whoa!" Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, but yeah. I would love, like, you know, for example, BK Rewind to to kind of do. A, you know, she she does great analysis of movie stars and star persona and the interrelationship between star persona and their work and like. 
it would be interesting to see kind of that analysis taken about Nicolas Cage and his work. Um, Izzy, get on it. <laughs> Izzy, get on it. Please, <laughs> please, and thank you. <laughs> I don't know if she's uh, if if, uh, if Cage. No, is it's, quite it's a, a little bit out of her. Yeah, it's not, not quite in the, in the time frame of, yeah. of interest. But I think there's there is that sort of same level of introspection there. And just by the by, one of the um, I, 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 well, you and I were just on another podcast where we talked about uh, Ron Howard's The Paper, and I started talking about His Girl Friday. But in in that felt in His Girl Friday, there's a scene where uh, Cary Grant refers to the fact that the actor played by Ralph Bellamy looks a lot like Ralph Bellamy, and Ralph <laughs> Bellamy is pa- playing a version of himself. So I think there, you know, like there is a long storied tradition of actors playing themselves. You know, look, what's one of the greatest action comedies? of all time with an actor playing themselves in it. Any thoughts? No. Arnold Schwarzenegger in The Last Action Hero. That is one of the greatest, greatest metatextual movies about But does he, yeah, he, he play he, himself? He does. There's a, there's a moment where he, he's, he is Jack Slater that then goes into the world where Arnold Schwarzenegger is the, real, is the, is the actor who plays Jack Slater. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And that is a beautiful metatextual like, uh, analysis of both Less about stardom, but about the nature of movies um, yeah. and action movies. I think that that movie is incredible. Is that that's a Richard Donner film? Is that is that right? I believe so. Yeah, I believe yes. so. Yeah, uh, and that's um, a brave. That's a brave. Like so sure. brave that that movie flopped hard. <laughs> like that flopped yeah. hard. But I think and I think it's found. Uh, um, yeah. Sort of a resurgence in respect. Uh, based it's gonna, on that a movie lot of, is going to John stand, McTiernan. Yeah. It was a John McTiernan. John movie. McTiernan, not Richard Donner. Uh, that movie is going to stand the test of time. Uh, And, you know, whether the unbearable, uh, my assessment here is that Nicolas Cage is going to stand the test of time. I don't know if this movie, this movie will. Yeah. Also, side note that we were on the Test of Time podcast. That's not going to be out for a couple months, I think, or whatever. So we'll let you know when that episode of the paper is uh, is out there. (laughs) Anyway, this has been the only podcast about the film, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Shahir, when you are not hefting the uh, gargantuan girth of Ooh. just skill and presence in your own life. Where can folks find you? Oh, you can feel, uh, you can watch me being weighed down talking pompously about movies on this podcast. That's what it is. This episode is really just about me. Uh, or you can go to my website at www.shahirdaud.com, which is even more about me. S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D.com. Uh, Matt, when you are in a cage fight with yourself, where can people find you? You can find me um, <laughs> never ringing the bell, I don't know, <laughs> at my website, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com, my life and works. Also, Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z on Instagram or P-S-N, and of course, Emperor MSK on Twitter. Also, please check out the good works we are doing over at Extra Credits. We are knocking out the park, this tulip mania thing. We are getting into how the actual colleges and tulip trading worked and how it was uh, kind of set up to fail a little bit from the beginning. Uh, by the time this comes out, and we'll be midway through that series. Oh, and then we got a So You Haven't Read on Oedipus coming out. Ooh. Oedipus the King. Uh, Should I keep which my eyes good. on that one? Yeah, it's a complex one. Ding! Um, anyway, that's it for this week. Next week is either... Bob's Burger or, or, Bob's top, Burgers or, or top, top Gun. gun. <laughs> you couldn't have two more disparate experiences in the movies. I don't know. You know, I'm really... Uh, I, I love Bob's Burgers. I was so deep into seasons one and two. And then I, I fell off to the point where I I will just watch episodes, you know, like Same. randomly. Well, the good enough. thing is there's no... Con- I mean, there's continuity, but like not really. Like no. you can jump into any episode and like... They're not... It's not so referential that you're going to be lost. No, no, no. But I, I... But, you know, again, I recall with like... Uh, the Simpsons and Family Guy and what have you, I would watch whole seasons yeah. and you would get a sort of sense of like how the the overall world was transforming and the deepening of the understanding yeah, 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 between yeah. characters. And I, and now yeah. I just watch and uh, I, I love Bob's Burgers. I love all the characters. I know you've played Bob on uh, on Halloween once or twice. Yeah, it was um, very fun. So I, I'm The only really, reason to shave a mustache. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. There's a, a difficult, uh, difficult uphill battle of a TV show jumping to movies, I think, especially an animated TV show, I think... Especially one that's not really in the public zeitgeist overall. Like, this really does feel like one step up from the Aqua Teen Hunger Force movie in terms of popularity. Oh, like, Bob's Burgers is more popular than Aqua Bob, Teen. Bob's Burgers is very popular, but, like, it's 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 such a different space for it to exist in. Yeah, and, you know, like, this was the... Pro- like. South Park, the movie, made that incredible leap. Um, I think uh, the Beavis and Butthead movie certainly did. And the Simpsons movie kind of felt like a, a, a really great long episode. Sure. Um, so it's a, real, it's a tough, 
tough line to draw out. We'll be I'll be curious to see how it plays out. Um, nothing but love for for my man Bob, oh, yeah. and uh, um, I still have to try the baby. You can shive my car burger. That's the that's the one I got to try at home. You should. You should. <laughs> All right, everybody, we'll talk at you next week. Until then, enjoy movies, please. Yeah, why not? (laughs) Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.